0: Uh, my name is General Tim Cross. Uh, I'm on the advisory council with uh, Professor Nigel Bigger and the McDonnell Foundation. And uh, when he set up this series and I saw that Gary was coming to speak, I offered to chair it. Uh, I've known Gary for quite a long time, uh, about 30 years. And uh, I probably am, am one of the donkeys of the generals that I come speak about. Um, Gary is a, is a fantastic uh, chap. He's got a, a wealth of, of knowledge and understanding about all these issues. Uh, He was uh, on the War Studies Department at the Royal Military Academy of Sandhurst uh, just after I left, actually. Um, So I didn't actually see him there. But he then lectured regularly on the uh, Joint Command and Staff course for the British military at Shrivenham and including being the senior military historian, really, for the Higher Command and Staff course, which is a sort of operational level course where we train our colonels and brigadiers. I did that course back in the late 90s and probably one of the best courses I ever did. And people like Gary are very key to that. He then chaired the War Studies Department of Birmingham and moved on to Wolverhampton last year, and, uh, which is where, where he is now as the Professor of War Studies. Um, he edited the Hague papers and uh, knows a lot about World War I, and obviously at the moment his life is exploding. <laughs> his, his Twitter feed went up to 3,000 as a result of some comment he made over the weekend, so he's <laughs> in much demand. And uh, his latest publications, um, well, I won't list through them all, but I can only highly recommend any of them, really, and particularly the World War One, Douglas Hague and, and World War I, um, <coughs> you know issues. So we're really pleased and very privileged to have Gary with us. I heard him speak only a couple of weeks ago at uh, RUCIN when he was talking about Operation Market Garden and offering some really interesting insights. I know he's going to offer some insights today. And Gary, thank you very much for coming. We we'll look forward to so. what you're Thank you very
1: much. Well, um, my title is Victorious, Gen- uh, Victorious Donkeys. Uh, the phrase, of course, comes from lines led by donkeys, the, uh, t- the, the phrase with which British generals of the First World War have been tarred. Uh, it's a phrase which uh, is of dubious provenance, probably almost certainly predates 1914 to 1918. And to be honest, tells, I think tells us as much about what we think about the First World War now as what people thought about generals at the time. But we are faced with a paradox that this much maligned group of senior British officers who presided over undoubtedly the bloodiest war that Britain has ever fought, uh, almost but not quite uniquely, Britain's losses in the First World War were higher than those in the Second, but for reasons which uh, I hope to explain later on. Yet this very same group of people presided over what I think is by scale and in terms of the issues at stake, the greatest series of victories in British history, the 100 days campaign of August to November 1918. So how do we square this circle of imparting competence leading an army to victory. But what I'm going to do this evening is really to divide my talk into two parts. The first part is to explain why there was a fair measure of failure in the first part of the war, but then go on to to explain why in the second half of the war, things were rather different. And this does involve me going back uh, for at least part of the talk to the pre-1914 period. And I'll start with a quote from Lord Kitchener, Secretary of State for War, appointed in 1914, who was once heard to say in a moment of particular stress, did they remember when they went headlong into a war like this that they were without an army, without any preparation to equip one? They, of course, being what in the 1940 18 war would have been called the frocks, the frock coats, the politicians. And that, I suggest, gets to the heart of the problem, that Britain found itself committed to waging a sort of war for which the army was utterly unprepared. It was not of any reasonable sort of size. And worse than that, there weren't even any plans that could be pulled off the shelf that they could follow to build the army up to a larger level. And Kitchener was the man who was left to grapple with this problem in the first part of the war. Of course he died in June 1916. So let's look at what the state of the army was before the First World War. Well in broad terms, the British Army was very different from that of its major continental uh, rivals, France, Germany, Russia, Austria, Hungary. They all had large armies really intended for continental warfare, warfare against other large states, the continent of Europe, and uh, and they were recruited by conscription, hence their size. British Army was very different, it was small, it was entirely composed of volunteers, although uh, quite reasonably it was pointed out at the time that there was a certain amount of conscription involved, the conscription of hunger, as in people joining the army because they couldn't get a decent job uh, in everyday life, but it was essentially a colonial police force which could on occasions throw off um, ad hoc expeditionary forces, large-scale forces to be deployed to fight in Europe, but that was not its primary purpose, it was not big enough for that, it was not structured for that, and the experience of the commanders was certainly not of that sort. And if we go back a little further into history, it must be said that the British experience of suddenly improvising what in the First World War was called an expeditionary force from this colonial police force was not exactly encouraging. Look, for example, at the beginning of the war with Revolutionary France, which for Britain began in 1793. The British sent what troops were available to the um, to fight alongside the Austrians uh, against the the revolutionary French, which consisted of not much more than uh, a brigade. Uh, It was always a very small force, and they had a pretty brutal uh, experience of combat under very difficult conditions. Um, The latter stages of that campaign, incidentally, was the one in which uh, Arthur Wesley, the uh, late to be the first Duke of Wellington, cut his military teeth. He famously said when asked if you learnt anything from that campaign well I learnt what not to do and that is always something and that really has been the experience of the British army down the ages when faced with this sort of warfare. One of the reasons for this is very straightforward that um, the Royal Navy not the army was the first line of defence for Britain, and of course by 1914, the British Empire. That gave the British the luxury, if I can put it like that, of neglecting its army, of keeping it small and volunteer. Um, France, Germany, Russia did not, for very obvious reasons of strategic geography, have that same luxury. There were some attempts to increased the size of the army, albeit at one remove, in the years running up to 1914. Um, Richard Burton Hordane, the great uh, reforming Liberal Secretary of State for War, attempted, among other things, to reform Britain's auxiliary forces by bringing together the, the volunteers, the yeomanry and the militia, which were three slightly different forms of of, of volunteer home service troops into one um, more rational force, the territorial force, and uh, to a very large extent he succeeded. He was of course assisted in this, as in many of his military reforms, by his right-hand, military right-hand man, um, Major General Douglas Haig. As an aside, I'll say that any uh, uh, attempt to paint Haig as stupid as uh, Jeremy Paxman uh, said in an interview quite recently, I think um, founders on the idea that uh, uh, Haldane, who was an exceptionally bright, indeed brilliant man, thought very highly of Haig, And Haig built his reputation in the pre-war uh, army as a thinking, thinking soldier. Well, the, the concept of the territorials worked, but what didn't work was th- this, the idea was that this was going to be Britain's equivalent of a nation in arms. They hoped to recruit something like 900,000 men to the territorials, which would be a solid home service army, possibly a reserve for future wars. Um, And that didn't happen. Um, Territorial recruiting got nowhere near that, I mean, barely a third of it. Um, So Britain, despite its best efforts in that that respect, did not succeed in building itself uh, a major uh, reserve army before the war there was also the indian army now this proved in the event in the first world war to be an immensely valuable resource but it had to be used with care partly because there was a general assumption fairly or not that indian troops could not be regarded with the same le- level of reliability as british troops the gurkhas of course from nepal technically were seen as an exception to that but also they were the, the indian army was a home security force as much as anything else. It was there, intended there, to um, provide security for, for, for British India. There's also the problem of planning in a vacuum. When Haldane began to create what became the British Expeditionary Force, um, the idea of having a, a, a striking force of well-trained divisions who were kept together and could be sent overseas to deploy at a drop of a hat, where are you going to send them? It could be they would be deployed to Belgium to fight alongside the French. Quite just as, just as plausibly, they could be sent to the northwest frontier of India to defend against Russia. So planning in a vacuum, never an easy thing for an army to do, was another, another factor involved here. But it all comes back, as it always does, to money. The simple fact was that the army before 1914 operated under severe budgetary restraints. There was in fact a full-blown mismatch between foreign and what we today call defence policy. What I mean by that is Sir Edward Grey, the British Foreign Secretary, entered into agreements with Russia and France which did not amount to a full-scale alliance, it is true, but at the very least represented moral commitments to support uh, Russia and France in time of war with Germany. And actually, realistically, it was much more than moral commitments. Um, Britain's strategy and security, I would argue, depended very largely on France and Russia not losing the war. Hence, some of you might have seen, I had a piece in The Times on, on Saturday uh, taking Professor Neil Ferguson's idea that Britain should have stayed out of the war head on. I simply don't think that was practical politics in 1914. I don't think um, the evidence stacks up today. So you've got a commitment of sorts by Britain to support France and Russia. But what you don't have is the finance of the army or even the plans to allow armed forces to be built up commensurate with the task that foreign policy had put put, put on the table. So ultimately, I think many of the British Army's problems, and specifically the problems of the generals, which I'm going to be talking about this evening, come down to the unwillingness of governments, and ultimately British electorates, to foot the bill. So when war breaks out in 1914, The regular army had something like 250,000 men with about the same, in fact, a few more in the territorial force. If you count in every single category of soldier, um, you come to something like three quarters of a million, which sounds a lot, certainly a lot bigger than the British army today, but push this... in the the perspective that when Britain goes to war in 1914, it's able to put six infantry divisions and one cavalry division in the field in France. Um, The French start the war with 62 infantry and 10 cavalry divisions, the Germans 87 infantry divisions, and 11 cavalry cavalry divisions. In other words, the standing military forces of the British Empire in 1914 were hopelessly inadequate for the type and the scale of the war that was to unfold on the Western Front and one of the consequences of this is that what I've christened the cult of unreadiness which the British had seen time after time again 1793 I've already mentioned much more recently 1899 beginning of the second Boer War really took Britain by surprise and they were forced into a pretty sizable in context mobilization to fight the war in South Africa it happens again in 1914 15, but on a vastly larger scale. And this involves mass improvisation. We see really the only member of Asquith's Liberal cabinet, um, apart from Kitchener himself, with any sort of military experience or military inclinations Winston Churchill, first lord of the Admiralty. Going out to Antwerp in uh, 1914 to, and he wants to take command of the, f- of the British forces that are sent there to hold that city. That causes a fair amount of uh, hilarity among his colleagues back in London. The idea of uh, uh, Winston, whose uh, previous military experience had topped out as second lieutenant in the Fourth Hussars, uh, him to be p- appointed general so he could wage great wars on the Western Front. In fact, um, the Antwerp intervention was quite significant, and I'm not going to go into its strategic, strategic significance at the moment. All I will say is, it's a typical example of what should we do, that's a good idea, that's do it, is improvisation. Very, very typical of what happens at the beginning of the war. Even worse, on a bigger scale, of course, is Gallipoli in 1915. Now, there's all sorts of reasons why I can criticise the conduct of the Gallipoli campaign but the bottom line is this is a hastily thrown together expedition a lot of troops who have not been properly trained commanders who don't know their staffs all the rest of it it's frankly um, a military operation which deserves to fail and it duly does and before we get too sort of smug by thinking about well that's all in the past now isn't it I, well, I'm going to stop my analysis at 1945, but I would argue that we see exactly the same thing in the Second World War. Um, Norway in 1940, when the same man who brought you Antwerp brought you Norway and his Prime Minister this time. Greece in 1941, and the campaigns waged by uh, Field Marshal Archie Wavell in 1940 to 41 uh, in the Middle East, which involved Acute balancing of resources and commitments, memorably described by one historian as a thing of shreds and patches. The same thing could have been said of the First World War. This is something which the British Army tends to find itself doing because of lack of preparedness, usually due to lack of finance, meaning frantic improvisation. There's another reason, I think, while British commanders at the beginning of the war were very often unsuccessful. That is, that while commanders who had been to the Staff College at Camberley would have have known something about recent big wars, so the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 and 1905 was studied. So was the American Civil War in the 1860s. And, of course, the Napoleonic uh, the Wars a 100 years before. And before you think, well, that's quite a long time ago, the First World War is still studied by, 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 by British officers to this day, because it's got a, a lot of important lessons to, to be learned from it. So they would have known something about big wars, but really only in an intellectual sense, actually, the majority of their time spent on operations was spent in small bushfire wars in Africa and Asia, which proved to be very testing, extremely difficult to wage, but not much in the way of useful preparation for what they were going to come up against. Even the Boer War, the Second Boer War, 1899 to 1902, By far and away, the largest colonial conflict fought by the British in this period is best described as being a big, small war. It fell a long way short of the sort of uh, of scale and intensity of operations that the British Army was to face between 1914 and 1918. So even if you've got a very well experienced commander, like, for example, Field Marshal Sir John French, who took the British Expeditionary Force, the BEF, to France in 1914 and remained in command until the end of 1915. He was about as experienced as any commander on the British side, but his experience was not terribly relevant to the sort of war that he was engaged in. He had commanded the cavalry division in the Boer War with some great success. He was quite a dashing mobile war figure, He was simply temperamentally unsuited for the grinding attrition that he found himself uh, up against on the Western Front. And much the same could be said about his, uh, in effect, second in command, and a man who was eventually to uh, supersede him, Douglas Haig, although I think Haig coped rather better than French, a bit more about that later. Another factor in initial British failure, British or lack of success is probably a better way of putting it, in 1914 through to uh, certainly the end of 1916, is the fact that Britain was not fighting Germany on its own. Actually, it was fighting as part of a coalition, and the senior partner in the western part of the coalition was not Britain, it was France. The French, not unreasonably, quite objected to having the Germans occupying a big chunk of their most productive industrial land. And the French strategy was to expel the Germans from their territory as quickly as possible. Sir John French, later Sir Douglas Haig, were nominally independent. They had what soldiers today would call a national red card, meaning that actually, If they were ordered to do something they really did not want to do or thought was not in the national interest, they could complain about it to their national government and not obey the orders of the larger military power, France. But you play the national red card at your peril on a very, very um, few number of occasions. And both French and Hague, although they spent a lot of time complaining about about, uh, about the French, were broadly supportive allies who tried to fit in with what the French commanders in the period we're talking about, uh, General uh, Mars- Marshal Joff wanted. This meant that the British, for example, were committed to fighting over the slag heaps and, uh, and ruined miners' cottages um, at the Battle of Luce in September 1915, when the British basically didn't want to fight there. Uh, they would rather have fought somewhere else in a rather different way. It meant that Britain was forced to commit troops to uh, the show so of all sideshow, Salonika in Greece, basically because the French were very keen on it for reasons of internal French politics, and the British really had to keep the peace within the, in the alliance. And above all, I think it meant that Britain had to fight on the Somme in July 1916 when Douglas Haig, who had taken over by that stage, would have preferred to have fought, to have fought up in the Ypres salient where there were much more obvious and arguably attainable uh, strategic objectives. And he didn't want to fight starting on the 1st of July 1916. He wanted to delay t- at least until mid-August, by which time he would have more guns and, he hoped, the first tanks. But he couldn't do it because the French insisted, and after a fair amount of argument, he gave way. As Lord Kitchener himself admitted in August 1915, at a time when things were really not going terribly well for the British, he said, unfortunately, we have to make war as we must and not as we should like to. I suspect that is a sort of sentiment that will be echoed by British commanders in a coalition and we're almost never the lead element down the ages. Okay, if that's the problems, how is it all turned around? Well, the first thing to say is that the problem that faced the British, of course, was the same problem that faced everybody else. How do you break through the deadlock on the Western Front? The deadlock was caused by what I like to describe as high technology and low technology. The high technology, modern, intensely destructive artillery and machine guns. The low technology, the Mark I spade, with which you dig a hole in the ground, a series of holes becomes a trench, and barbed wire, which you put up in front of it. At its crudest, that means that the man in the trench becomes very difficult to hit and to kill. The man attacking the trench exposes his entire body to gunfire. There's a temporary dominance of the defensive over the offensive. Begins late 1914, ends early 1918. All the armies are are grappling with it. But this is complicated by another factor. That factor is a change in the conduct of war so profound it's become known among historians as a, an RMA, a revolution in military affairs. Again, put it very, very crudely, in 1914, if you want to fire at something with an artillery gun, you need to be able to see it, well, any chance of hitting it anyway. Put a man in an airplane with a crude wireless set who can fly over the enemy trenches, spot enemy positions, radio back the fall of shot. Suddenly, you have a weapon which transforms warfare. And The argument is made, and I think actually it's right, that warfare changes profoundly because of this, from late 1914 onwards. It actually creates the sort of warfare that is waged to to, to today. So the British Army has to grapple this. Oh, there's another thing I forgot to mention. The British Army, of course, has expanded massively. The old regular army has been killed off, very largely. Instead, we have the mass volunteer army, topped up by conscripts from 1916 onwards. The British army of six divisions on the Western Front in 1914 becomes 60-60 two years later. This is an army which is barely trained for the simple reason that experienced soldiers, those who survived 1914 and those who are pulled out of retirement, are spread very very thinly indeed across the armies. It's been described by my former colleague at the University of Birmingham, John Bourne, as the de-skilling of the army, and I think that's a very good way of putting it. So the British Army has this brutal form of on-the-job training, fighting the German army on the Somme. Again, comparison with the Second World War helps to explain why the British British losses are so lower in in the Second World War than than they are in the First. British Army after Dunkirk, the vast bulk of that army spends its time in training in the UK, not fighting the enemy in the main set of operations. That's not to downplay the very nasty conditions at Alamein and Casino and so on and so forth, but the bulk of the army is in training in the UK. Haig would desperately have liked to have that option, but he simply doesn't. The British Army is in contact with the enemy the whole time. And something which has emerged from this, is a debate about the extent to which the British army and specifically its commanders learned lessons. Not a very accurate way of putting it but the the tag learning curve debate has come about. So to what extent did Haig and other senior generals learn lessons during the First World War? Well let me just say something about Douglas Haig, clearly the most controversial general in British history I think that only Lord Cardigan of Crimea fame runs him close on, 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 on that front a national hero in his lifetime a villain within about five years actually and today still pretty much a villain I think in the eyes of of most people He's been criticised as being the archetypal Chateau General. It's worth actually looking in a little more detail at this accusation, because I think there's an awful lot about the problems of command in the First World War. By Chateau General, we, of course, bring to mind um, somebody sitting miles behind the lines in great comfort, swigging champagne while Tommy Atkins in the front line um, fights and dies among mud and squalor. Now, I think actually they did themselves no good whatsoever in PR terms by locating themselves in Chateau. But of course, the reason they're at, they're at, they're at a place like that it has a very practical reason. The closer you get to the, fir- to the front line in the First World War, the fewer troops you can command. Douglas Haig, on one occasion, initially when he was a corps commander at 1st EEP in 1914, while he was commander in chief, went towards the front line because the front line had given way and he went forward to see what he could do. It was the sensible thing to do under the circumstances, but the circumstances were those of chaos. Basically, he demoted himself from, at the time, lieutenant general to platoon commander. The only people he could command were those that could hear him shout. Because in the First World War, almost uniquely in the history of war, voice command from on high was not possible. At the Battle of Waterloo in 1815 or Gettysburg in 1863, um, Wellington or Lee could get on their horses and ride round their armies. They were small enough and compact enough to do that, or send out uh, aide de camp on horseback. Fast forward a generation after Hague, Montgomery. Pattern, Eisenhower, to get on the radio net and issue orders to frontline units. First of all, you couldn't do that. There were no voice communications beyond the frontline trenches. Brilliant telephone communications up to the, to the front line. Beyond that, they might as well have been on the dark side of the moon when they went into no man's land. So, generals have to be some way back. At the end of a telephone to have any chance at all of getting information, getting intelligence. You needed a fairly big place, like a chateau, to install uh, a uh, a, a telephone um, exchange. And frankly, who likes being uncomfortable? Very noticeably, in the Second World War, British generals, most of whom, of course, had been junior officers in the First World War, went out of their way to avoid any idea that they were chateau generals. Although, interestingly, more British generals were killed in the First World War, many, many more, than were killed in the Second World War, so appearances can be deceptive. But clearly, the likes of Montgomery and Alexander had picked up on the bad PR of their predecessors. So, when we're talking about British generals, actually, we're talking about a very large and disparate group of people, perhaps between 13 and 1,500 people of Brigadier General, one star as we would say today, up to Field Marshal, five star across the uh, across the world. Probably about 1,200 to 1,300 um, on the Western Front, and they could be have a whole range of jobs: commanding brigades, divisions, corps, army, or they could be senior staff officers, or they could run rear echelon uh, organisations, units, saying, talking about the generals actually is remarkably misleading. But of course, I will focus on the fighting generals here. To what extent did they learn? Well, I think we need to start from... suggest uh, the point that these men found themselves, when trench warfare came about at the end of 1914, with a set of circumstances which no one really had anticipated. There was no template solution. And everybody, this is just as true, the French army, the German army, was frantically improvising, trying to see what works, discarding that which didn't. Sometimes it must be said going down blind alleys by finding things that apparently worked but actually did not lead ultimately to success. In 1915, the basic British approach was, if you like, one more heave. The first battle that the British fought on conditions of trench warfare in 1915 was Neuve Chapelle. They gained a great deal of success at the very beginning of the battle, but they rapidly then ran out of steam. Really, because having punched a hole in the German lines, they could then not bring reserves forward in enough time. Why? Because communications were so poor, they didn't know when to commit the reserves or where to send them. The Germans were able to plug the gap. And what the British High Command did after that was to examine Neuve Chapelle in some detail. And they came to the conclusion: fix that problem, that is, getting reserves to, to the front quickly enough, and we'll be all right next time. The problem was the Germans were equally learning, and they were fixing their defensive problems. And so what we find is a whole series of battles in which the British recognize problems, fix them, or think they fixed them only to find the Germans are one step ahead of them or one or more steps ahead of them. And this continues, I would argue, until the spring of 1917 when finally the British get their noses in front at the Battle of Arras in April 1917. For a whole series of reasons which I won't go into now but you can ask me in the questions afterwards if you like, the British suddenly, well not not suddenly, uh, building on their previous experiences of the Somme and other battles, find themselves able to dominate the battle and start to make the Germans to some degree dance to their tune. Could they have learnt this any, quick, any more quickly? Well, possibly, but in my view, this is a slow and steady learning process that really can only be done by experiencing the reality of, of, of battle, the reality of command and working out solutions on the hoof. The British can be criticised for not listening to their French uh, allies, who in some ways were more advanced. Um, and there's a bit of what today we might call the, uh, the not invented here syndrome going on. But broadly speaking, I think the idea that the British generals could have learnt any more quickly than they did to be pretty implausible. Um, I suspect it's one of these things you know, that could only come with, with the, 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 uh, the, the, the bitterness of experience. What generals actually did, I think, also had to undergo a certain amount of change. The average British general, then, was really an overgrown regimental commander. Their heart, actually, was with their troops in the front line. That is why three British major generals, divisional commanders, are killed on one day in September 1915 at the Battle of Luce that is why orders had to be issued in fact before that forbidding staff officers to go into the front line not because they were cowards but rather they were going to the front line and getting killed staff officers were a precious resource which needed to be husbanded whereas to put it bluntly regimental officers could be replaced very quickly something else which actually doesn't tend to hasn't tended to, to register on public perceptions of officers in the First World War. Staff officers had to be held back for a very good reason. It takes a very long time to to train an efficient staff officer. And so generals, I would argue, found themselves acting in a more bureaucratic fashion and were less able to exercise leadership in the traditional way as a result of the conditions which came to pass on the battlefields of the Western Front. The idea of leading a division from the front as Ned Pakenham did at Salamanca in 1812, is completely out of the question in the First World War. People try to do it, they're not very successful and they're probably going to end up getting killed. Instead, some generals increasingly become war managers, Haig in particular. This is learning how to control resources, to to put them into the right place at the right time, to ensure that sufficient resources are available, it's all a very long way from the heroic, romantic view of what a general actually does. In truth, of course, generals throughout history, or at least some generals throughout history, have always had this function. But increasingly, generals, given the huge size of the British army, at divisional you know, Division is, 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 a, is, a, is a formation of, say, 12 to 15,000 men. Corps level, corps will be two or more um, divisions, or army, which will be two or more corps. They find themselves actually able to take fewer and fewer important decisions. They simply become cogs in an ever-greater machine. It was written about uh, General Sir Henry Horne, commander of the First Army from 1916 to 1918, that really he wasn't unable to exercise the sort of decision-making that, in previous years, someone of his, um, his, 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 his level in the army and given the size of the force under, under his command would be able to do. Instead, you know, he basically was operating within tram lines. So my suggestion about the way the British uh, commanders improved in the First World War really comes down to this they had to come to terms with the sort of war the war had become. War in which attrition was the key. Battles like the Somme and Passchendaele left actually remarkably little scope for individual initiative or command in the traditional sense by most commanders. Even Douglas Haig, I would argue his most important role in the Western Front is not the strategic decisions that he took, although obviously he did take some and they were important, but actually it was ensuring that the army was properly trained, that logistics were given proper attention, that relations with the politicians at home and with the French uh, commands in France were maintained. In short, Haig cannot be compared, as actually the late John Terrain Used to, used, used, used to do so, cannot be compared to any of the other great, com- great captains in history. I greatly admire John Terrain's work, but I think he simply got this one wrong. Haig was essentially a 20th century war manager in a way which Marlborough or Napoleon or Alexander the Great simply were not. The nature of command, the nature of generalship, had changed dramatically. And it all comes right in 1918. All sorts of reasons for Allied success, but let me just highlight the ones I think can be put down to British commanders. The first one really is Douglas Haig, who um, effectively becomes the most important lieutenant of Marshal Foch, the French General who's elevated over command of all the Allied forces. Actually, he's more of a coordinator than a supreme commander in Eisenhower's sense. But he is very, very important. And Haig becomes one of his principal sources of advice, encouragement, and really the, the commander of of, of, the mo- of the most effective fighting force under his under his command. I should actually say by British, I am also meaning British Empire, Australians, Canadians, New Zealanders, so on uh, are very important as well. So. The Hundred Days for 1918, uh, I I think, is Haig's finest moment as an operational commander. The second thing is that they move away from the attempt to achieve great breakthrough battles. Um, Instead, they come up with, and this is, again, a certain amount of trial and error, with a form of warfare which roughly equates to what we today would describe as operational art. What I mean by that is that you tended to have attacks up and down the front, that tactics had improved sufficiently by this stage. You could normally advance five, six, seven miles in one go, but rather than bashing on and trying to break through, you would then shut down that operation and switch the main point of effort to somewhere else on the front. They could do this... Basically, because by 1918, logistics and transport and the sheer number of guns available had improved to such a degree that it was feasible to switch forces from A to B without massive dislocation. A year earlier, um, in the run up to, to the Battle of Passioneau, it had not been possible to do that quickly. You Had to relocate loads and loads of guns and move them. By 1918, you had enough guns in place. You didn't have to do that. And so, what, happ- what actually brings about victory in 1918? There's lots of other things as well, but specifically these sort of operational factors, is the generals learn to keep pushing on all fronts to stop, in effect, when they're faced with, with an objective, and uh, with, with, with an obstacle rather, and then move the point of attack somewhere else. And so, by keeping up enormous pressure in a nutritional in sense up and down the line, the Germans are gradually forced back, until in the a series of sequential offensives which begin with the uh, Franco-American attack on the 26th of of, of September and end with the attack of British Fourth Army on the 29th of September. They crack the Hindenburg Line, the main German defences, and suddenly the Germans are beyond that and they really don't have a major defensive position behind them. From that point onwards it's really only a matter of time before the Germans give up. This, I I should point out, actually means that Haig's cherished uh, denouement of the war, which actually is to use cavalry in an exploitation role, which is by no means a completely ridiculous idea, incidentally, doesn't happen. Actually, cavalry are very effective in 1918, but generally in small numbers to harry retreating German troops. And in some cases, the Germans are retreating so fast, cavalry are being used Allies basically to, to keep up with them because, because they're, they're, they're running away too quickly. So, in 1918, to conclude, the donkeys, put it like that, have learned their lessons. They've learned their lessons well. They have come up with a form of warfare that is entirely appropriate for the, for, uh, for the, the circumstances of the time. And they apply it with devastating effectiveness, certainly far more effectively than their German counterparts when they took the offensive earlier in 1918. The abiding question of course is did they learn quickly enough and were the vast numbers of deaths involved worth the wait? Well you can certainly make a case that individual commanders might have learned more quickly, but basically I think that it was going to take that amount of time, give or take, no matter what. And as for the losses, the single most important reason why the British regard the First World War with such horror is the vast scale of loss, larger than any other loss in British history. To contextualize it, of course, British losses were lower than those of the French, the Germans, the the, the, the Russians. And British losses actually pale into insignificance, almost, when you put it up against the gigantic losses on the Eastern Front in the Second World War. But if you fight that sort of war, sadly, you must expect those sorts of casualties. And in the end, victory was delivered at a price which I think the British army and the British nation could bear, To some extent we still carry the scars of the First World War but nonetheless the generals did what they were asked to do and they did it and in the end the fact it was the British along with their French, American and other allies who won the war, rather than the Germans dictating peace in Paris, suggests they did their job effectively, thank you very much.